Summer is upon us. SpyOptic.com is a longtime supporter of this podcast, and we've worked a deal to spread some love all around. You can get a pair of sunglasses or goggles, support this show, and invest in ocean and earth health at the same time. In the month of June, when you spend $85 or more, Spy will gift you a membership to the Surfrider Foundation. Just use our promo code PODCAST. Obviously, they make killer product and have tons of styles for everyone. Um, They have that happy lens technology. So you'll be psyched on the shades, you'll support this podcast, and you'll become a Surfrider Foundation supporter and member. You'll also get a free t-shirt and Surf Splendor branded sunglass pouch when you use our promo code. Just add any t-shirt from spyoptic.com to your cart, and then our promo code podcast will zero out the cost. Thanks for the support. Also, I will be in New Smyrna Beach, Florida this weekend at the Florida Surf Film Festival alongside CJ and Damian Hobgood to screen their new documentary film, And Two If By Sea. If you're around, swing by. I would love to connect. You can secure tickets for that, which will sell out, by the way, at floridasurffilmfestival.com. Hope to see you there. Today's episode is with Nathan Fletcher and filmmaker Michael Oblowitz. Their new film, Heavy Water, will be screened this Thursday, June 13th in select theaters across the U.S. You can go to fathomevents.com and search Heavy Water to find a theater near you. I've also posted a link to that on surfsplendorpodcast.com. We cover a lot of ground in this conversation as I try to corral the two. As we detour into tangents, I implore you to come along for the ride because there are some really unexpected moments of important surf history from Michael and then really valuable truths from Nathan about mental health and persevering trauma. It'll feel like the conversation is going superficial for a second, but again, it gets deep really quickly and uh, this kind of happens throughout the episode from the beginning to the end. And I fully enjoyed every minute of it, so I hope that you do as well. Michael Oblowitz is a South African filmmaker who released his first feature film in 1983. He's produced and directed hundreds of commercials and music videos for everyone from David Bowie to Diana Ross, Eric Clapton, Garth Brooks to John Lee Hooker. In 2010, his first surf film, Sea of Darkness, which was a documentary about drug running and its ties to the surf industries. That film won awards at film festivals from San Sebastian to Sundance, but it was never released to the public. Michael will explain why in our discussion. His second feature film is Heavy Water, and it was the impetus for today's conversation. It centers around professional surfer Nathan Fletcher, and it tells his family's lineage and their inextricable influence on surfing. The film then picks two lanes aerial surfing and big wave surfing and it details the development of those things through the first act of the film drugs become introduced into the storyline along with cautionary tales of figures who were derailed from maximizing their fullest potential 
Nathan Fletcher is the nucleus of it all, sometimes overindulging and suffering consequence, but always escaping and sometimes even being catapulted by a single wave into the next phase of his life and his career. Through the third act of the film, really poignant and existential connections become apparent between Nathan's most traumatic life experiences and then nearly immediate rebirths, though the meaning of those things aren't always apparent to Nathan until years later. The film builds to a crescendo of a concept Nathan has been visualizing since childhood, an amalgam of his athletic prowess, his penchant for aerial surfing, and his bravado in big surf. He wants to jump from a helicopter onto a wave, the ultimate acid drop. The scope of the film is ambitious. The acid drop through line is almost unnecessary and feels superficial compared to the gravity of all the rest of the film's subject matter. That said, it's probably the main thing that people will discuss about the film. And it's also kind of the reason why we love surfing, right? Is that irreverence? We like to pontificate about the spirituality of the act, but we're also fully aware of how frivolous playing in the ocean is. The film very successfully encapsulates that very hard-to-encapsulate sentiment that uh, we all live. Anyway, another detail is there's a lot of talk about um, drugs in this conversation, and I know that some of you listen with your teenagers in the car, so maybe skip this episode with them. Some of it is outright endorsement of drug usage, um, and then some of it is just more prudent, but you've been disclaimed. And without further ado, my name is David Scales. This conversation was recorded in Nathan Fletcher's hotel room in Hollywood at the beginning of a press junket day, and sadly just a couple of hours before Bruce Irons was planning to join them. They invited me to stick around for that, but I had other obligations. So anyways, here's Michael Oblowitz and Nathan Fletcher. I hope that you enjoy as much as I did. Shout we don't out, get Michael. the headphones. No, I'm oh, not. I'm not going to wear them either. I just wanted to check. No, yes, Nathan, no. give me a check on the mic. Hello, hi. Right, perfect. Right, give me a we're second. Good. Hold on. I'll go All right, so Michael, it. we're going to discuss right now your uh, I find stage it. dive. Belly flop. Right, belly flop. Find it. Hold so on. was it intentional? Every, everything. Oh, okay. I, everything. I didn't know. I Maybe do. he was just like chatting and didn't know where the edge no, was. You went down. Now everything I do is intentional. I'm a very, very. This is well you're, thought you're out. You're going to regret saying that later. Strategic human being. I'm going to find a flaw, and oh. then you're going to be embarrassed that it was intentional. Thing. Hold on. Okay, here it is. All right, so we'll put up the volume so you can actually hear it. Too. Doing your own at version of the acid drop. That's what I said. That's what I said. I'm doing the own. That's what I got up. I said I'm doing the own ver- my own version of the acid drop. Insane. Well, he actually dude. said, 
lucky I've taken much worse wipeout surfing. That was intentional. I don't believe you. <laughs> I don't believe that was intentional. Um, you know, really, it was only about a three-foot drop. I mean, like mm-hmm. I've had many worse wipeouts <laughs> than that in my life for sure, dude. It wasn't that bad. No, but it was the best entrance to a, uh, a show you can ever do. Really. There were five, about five or six hundred people in that audience. But he could have really hurt himself as well. It was totally. like, and especially uh, whatever, 60 years old. Like, And I wear glasses. I'm like an infirm and he's old man. In, in the yeah. light, all stoned. So I'm stoned out of my fucking brain. Which usual. actually helps, by the way. Well, that's why. Because it loosens everything up. Did well, you see his knee get, buckles and back? <laughs> I've been getting stoned out of my brain since I was 12, and that was about 50 years ago. So, you know what I mean? It's like, it definitely helps because I'm very happy. Did you, uh, didn't you say you just went to rehab? Rehab? No. Fuck no. I oh, okay. Go oh, okay. No, I've, so I, it didn't I've watched, take. I, what I meant is I've watched people go to rehab. All gotcha. gotcha. I have gotcha, no gotcha. need or desire to, to go to rehab. I mean, I've always been into products from marijuana. I think like, you know, you know, contrary to my appearance in the book, Cocaine and Surfing, <laughs> I, the real book I should be in is THC Gummy Bears and Surfing. <laughs> You got to appreciate the legality of it now too. It makes it a lot easier. I feel like, and the dosing is way more predictable. Absolutely not. I mean, I remember back in the day when I you was- You know what I mean? Even saying that is crazy. Yeah. No, no, dosing, I, no. Micro-dosing marijuana. It's like, I, you know what I mean? Like for you to yeah, say no. with that, like 1.8 grams, so yeah. you know, I know exactly, exactly how it's, it's going to hit. Exactly, because I'm a microdoser. When I was 18, I remember coming back from, I was coming back to South Africa from, I'd been around Europe and Israel with my dad. And Israel had really good hashish in like 1971, 72. And I had these cowboy boots on and I had like, in, in the arch of my, of, my, of my soul there, I had like four huge chunks of hashish, two in the left leg, two in the right leg. And that house, could you get hashish back to South Africa? You had to bring it in your boots. You know, that's what we had to do. If you got caught, you'd do 100 years in prison. Well, that's the crazy thing is the punishment is so unreal or was so unrealistic. Like people not only doing life in prison. They still are. Getting killed. Yeah. Yeah, There there are people who got busted selling a couple of joints at Grateful Dead concerts who are in prison for life. Yeah, like in a even or with the Louisiana rule. or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like probably getting whipped and chained by like weird right wing um, Trump supporting prison guards right. in uh, in Louisiana. Yeah, it's yeah. wild. It's wild. Um, I know we we're here to discuss heavy water, but that's actually a perfect segue into your first surf film. What was what was your um, kind of reason for getting into surf film in the first place? Obviously, Sea of Darkness dovetails with what we're talking about right now, but. Coming from Hollywood, why get into surfing? Well, first, I didn't come from Hollywood. So I was born in South Africa, right? So I was surfing long before I came to Hollywood. I was about like, I don't know, two years old, like very young. I still remember, it was one of my earliest memories is being on the beach in Cape Town and this weird gray, like little truck pulled up with an ostrich painted on the side. And out of this truck, because my, my parents, like Nathan, we all grew up on, people who surfed, like really surfed, all grew up on a beach somewhere. So my dad's house was right on the beach in Cape Town, right? my, my parents' house. You know, so I, that's all I did. I went to the beach and like swam and everything since I had some of my earliest memories, right? And one of those memories is this great truck pulling up with a ostrich painted on the side and these three guys coming out of the truck and two of them had, I'd never seen surfboards. We used to surf, when I was two, three, we used to ride air mattresses. You remember yep. those, the Lilo inflatable air mattresses? We'll say five. 
you know, or if five. Two years old, you're not. Well, I don't know. I don't remember what because I haven't. You know, it's a long time since I had a child. So I don't remember the the, the difference between two and five is kind of blurry because my kids in their twenties. You know what I mean? Right. But anyway, but um, I remember them walking down. The, I can see it as vividly as if it was yesterday. And the one board had like uh, red and blue stripes on it, and. They paddled out at this break right in front of you know, this wave right in front of my parents' house. This huge, big, like now I'd identified as a slab. Now it's called the Gasworks, but back okay. then nobody had ever. I, I don't think hardly anybody had ever surfed in Cape Town. It was like you know, like the '60s, right? And uh, the one of the guys had a little movie camera, which I didn't know was a movie camera either. That guy was Bruce Brown. No way. And the two guys were were, were Mike Henson and Robert August. And the gray the gray van with the ostrich is the van you see in the endless summer. Oh my gosh! You know, and uh, uh, the guy's name was Terence Bullen who had that van. And later on, my dad said, "You got to keep away from that guy because, like, I heard bad things about him and the young surfer guys." And there was this kind of reputation that Terence Bullen was a little bit on the pedophiliac side oh, no. of things. You know, when he he would take young guys surfing all over and. So, so, so it was a whole complicated surfing was taboo and keep away from this guy. And then we saw the guy surfing and then I saw the movie camera. So I, I think right out of the bat, surfing came with a kind of dark coloration to me, you know? And there was, and I think that's how people perceived surfing in the 60s. You know, they, they were, the surfers were all crazy motherfuckers with iron crosses on their hats. And they, they were part of that antisocial 60s thing, you know? Yeah. So it was the kind of thing your parents warned you against. And of course, surfers did drugs. Later on, when I met Mike Hinson, after I'd done Sea of Darkness, Mike Hinson requested an audience with me, right? And I had, he, you know, he was not that long after he'd come out of prison, right? And we had an amazing time sitting and he was recounting all these experiences. And he told me that he had brought speed with him to South Africa in the early 60s, right? And because uh, South Africa has always been awash with grass. It's like, you know, when you're going to like a, a, a legal grass shop now, you, you can buy all these different strains. And one of the main strains of sativa is called Durban Poison. And that's from Durban. That's what we used to smoke as teenagers in South Africa would buy real Durban poison. Wow. So Henson, who was probably 18 or 19 when he did Endless Summer, had brought like, it was that speed that Jack Kerouac and all the hipsters used to take. It's called Ben, Ben, Benz, Benzies, they called it, right? Benzedrine. Yeah, it was like Benzedrine. It was like in a, came in a cold mixture or something and you pulled it out. Right. That's what Jack Kerouac wrote on the road on and that's what Allen Ginsberg wrote, um, How. It was a famous, hipster drug from, from the first era of the beatniks and, and the surfers who were very closely aligned. You know, I remember Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg spent a lot of time in San Francisco and in Venice Beach. And so there was always this blending. And Mike Hinson really explained that to me. And he said when he was in Cape Town, he was always high as fuck. He was always popping speed and smoking the local Durban poison that he'd managed to hook up with, even though it was very dangerous to smoke grass. Right. And he said when they, when they found that perfect wave at Cape St. Francis, he said he'd been speeding the whole night. He hadn't slept and he'd walked down to the beach and seen this fucking wave. And he didn't really get on with Bruce Brown and with Robert August. They were very straight legs. Sure. And he was like this kind of hipster, right? So he was happy to get away from them. He was super high and he paddled out and he was surfing. And when... August and Hinson and, and Bruce Brown went looking for him. 
they found him surfing that wave and that's how the perfect wave was actually found. It was just him being really high. Fascinating. And, 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 and so, so, I mean, the, the relationship between drugs and surfing is deep and profound. You it know? is. And, you know, I always worry, like, when it's you make... Good. It's well worth worrying for. <laughs> yeah. Well, I worry about when you make something like Sea of Darkness that it's going to offend people and then isolate you from a community. But I think it also opens doors. Like, people who have had experiences like Hinson... They now know that you're an ally, and Dude, they can talk with you, and I it's safe to talk. I Hinson had written this book, uh, the uh, something, the Meditations of a Transcendental Surf uh, Gypsy, or some crazy title, right? Which was on a recounting of his life story, and it was like the endless summer from his perspective, okay. and then how he got involved in the Brotherhood of Eternal Love and Acid and so in that whole era when Nathan's parents, like Herbie and Debbie, were involved in it. It was like, like. Like like that 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 whole sixties kind of thing, right? And I always wanted to make a movie of of Henson's of Henson, right? Oh, that would have been amazing. Well, I mean, he's still alive. You know, it's just the question of getting someone to finance it, right? It's, yeah, it, it's it's so hard to get these things financed, right? Sure. In any way, shape, or form. Uh, but uh, Henson is a terrific story. He's one of the legendary early surfers of our era, yeah. of the modern era. He's a great surfboard shaper and just a real character who ended up spending a lot of time in jail for drug smuggling. He did about 10 years or something. He, he did hard time, but he was involved with um, the Brotherhood of Eternal Love and, and the Rainbow surfing, Surfer guys when they brought um, Jimi Hendrix to Rainbow Bridge. Remember the movie Rainbow Bridge? And they brought Hendrix over He put to, on Rainbow Bridge. Yeah. And then afterwards, he owned the footage. And it was a big problem with Warner Brothers and stuff because of, of Hendrix dying right after. Oh. But, which is interesting because Hendrix was making a surf movie. This is obviously from somebody who was born in 75, uh, wasn't there, doesn't know shit, third-hand information. Sure. We'll just disclaim it right there. But in my opinion, when you watch the footage of Hendrix playing at Rainbow Bridge, it's with the people he wanted to play with in Hawaii for surfers. And it's kind of like the best um, when Hendrix was at his, just at his best, you know. Right. And it's it's really rad to look at. And you're like, oh, man, because that was all him doing it with his, you know what I mean? It was like, yeah. oh, he made it big and all that. But then to really look at the footage when he plays, you know, like Polygap or the certain songs, it's like... It's pretty interesting, you know, and so it's it's pretty rad how that was really a peak of his career in as far as like oh if you're a Hendrix fan just my in my opinion being a surfer and stuff looking at that I was like no when wild. you actually have Hinson firsthand I mean it would be an amazing documentary you imagine like Hinson firsthand with the footage of Hendrix playing at Rainbow Bridge and Hinson I think Warner Brothers took that and Hinson Hinson describing how much acid he had sold on that day to Hendrix and how much acid Hendrix did, right? He said it was like, you know, because Henson yeah, was but, a huge acid dealer. But and you got to figure he might've been doing it for months straight, so. Oh, no, he made for, yeah, like. So maybe 10 hits three didn't even work because he might've did 10 hits the day before. So right. it's like, oh, you need 20 hits today. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, so no, it's that's like, what oh, Henson, it was way more than 20. It, you're like, oh, I need a whole sheet. It was way uh, more than 20 hits, right? Well, that's he's, what I mean. He was as high as fuck. He was tripping major huge balls. Yeah. And that's why the music sounds But that's just the story though. We don't know that because it's like his, drug intake he might have been on who knows what because we don't even know what was around you know well he died so, soon afterwards so, so he was so, definitely doing a lot of shit he didn't, no i know but he it's didn't like, die of old age you, you could <laughs> you could speculate on what he was on forever but you really don't know what why do you think you were allowed such access with the sea of darkness right, so that, I mean, let's just cut to the chase on sea of darkness right so like i had never had any intention of making surfing documentaries right surfing was what i did to get away from this crazy world that, you know, I'm born in South Africa, grew up 
in South Africa surfing my whole life since I was born. I mean, uh, it's like the only thing I ever did, I got out of every sport that I used to do because I really like to get stoned. And surfing was a sport you could do when you were stoned. So rugby, it's not so much fun smoking grass and then getting kicked in the head playing rugby, for me at, at, at any rate, right? So rugby was the main sport in South Africa. And when I was 19 or so, I was a, 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 you know conscripted to go into the South African army like everybody else of that age and go kill black people. So that wasn't my deal. And so I basically draft, cut a long story short, draft dodged the army and found my, I went to London where my mother was born so because I could go live in England. And uh, it was so fucking cold in England, I couldn't take it. And I tried to go surfing then, it was unbearable. The waves were like one foot high and onshore. And then my buddy Anton Fig, who's the drummer on the Letterman show, who actually does a lot of the score on the movie, right? He's a fantastic musician who I'd grown up with in Cape Town, right? Anton was already living in America. And he had a loft in New York City that was like, it was like $200 a month for a loft back then. And he said, uh, Michael, you gotta come to New York City, right? And uh, I thought, you're right. And I went, ended up in New York City. I remember it was like freezing fucking cold, but the sky was blue. And I hadn't seen a blue sky for so long. And Anton had a huge big joint in there to, to meet me in the car, right? And I was like, oh, this place is great. You know, blue skies, joints. And, uh, and, and, and that's what got me back into surfing, right? I hadn't surfed for about nine months or a year in, 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 uh, in England. So, so, but I, you know, so I always surfed, but I, I got a, I went to school in New York City and I became a filmmaker and like an artist, art filmmaker, right? And um, I, I know, Anton and I, when we were young, we used to go surfing all the time in Cape Town. We used to carry our longboards in the late 60s and sing Beatles songs. And we always had fantasies about making a surf movie and I would direct it and he would do the music. I mean, we, we were pretty much doing what we were doing from when we were like 15, 16 years old. You know, I, I always had a still camera and all that shit, right? But, you know, I, you know, I became one of the first music video guys, right? I directed all Clapton and yeah. fucking all these fucking people, Buddy Guy and Johnny Hooker. Like a really great career in the 80s when music videos were actually paid you a lot of money and you could have Porsches and things like that. And, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and it was real fun. But it, I had, you know, I used to surf all, me and Anton had a house that we shared in Montauk. So we surfed, that's how, I, so, and that was how I met Ricky Rasmussen in like the late 70s, early 80s, right? So we were surfing with Tony Caramanico and Alan Weisbecker and all those, you know, the guy that wrote Captain Zero. Mm -hmm. Those are all the New York surfing crew. And Julian Schnabel, the artist, and that's how I met Nathan's dad, Herbie. Oh, I didn't, Julian. I didn't know that connection. Yeah, like, so Julian, Julian I've known since I was like 20, 21, gotcha. right? So, so it all kind of comes together yeah. in, in, in full circle, but I had never had any intention of making surfing movies. And then I was being sent out to Turks and Caicos to do some crazy vampire movie uh, thing for oh, some. You went on the crossing out there, huh? Now that's when I met Martin. So I, I went plant. on. I went to the Turks and Caicos too, and went on the crossing and saw Martin. So you were there. How right weird before, is that? You must have been right before you because it was like right when he got there and he found that right. Yeah, was, yeah, I went and surfed that right. I yeah. mean, he told me where all the so I met Martin on the plane, right? Martin Daly. Yeah, how I met Martin was it was this really cute blonde girl walking through the Miami airport with a bag of surfboards. <clears throat> and of course, you know, at that point in time, I was like kind of very enthralled by single blonde girls with surfboards. And I started, I started talking to her and she had a South African accent. So, dude, this is like fucking noisy, that door. <laughs> Yo, 
Nathan, you got to close it. Everyone. Anyway, and, and I started talking to her, and she had a South African accent. So I started talking to her in Afrikaans. And it was a young Rosie Hodge. No. Yeah, Rosie Hodge. Crazy. The, the fantasy of all young surfers on the World Surf League broadcast. Yeah. So she was going to meet the crew from uh, the, the Quicksilver Crossing. Yeah. At, and sitting there was this old-looking gray-haired dude. Well, I didn't actually realize he was like the same age as me, but he looked like about 800 years older than me, right? And... Uh, we, we ended up sitting in first class together because I was doing a TV series and he was Martin Daly. And he started showing me all these pictures in his computer of all these waves because we started talking about surfing. And, da -da. and then I flashed, hey, I know who this guy is. I've seen an article on him in Surfer Magazine. Yeah. We started talking and, you know, like, you know, him being Australian, you know, we had a few uh, 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 scotches, you know, and all that shit. And then... Uh, and then uh, when we got off the plane, my the the boat that was supposed to pick me up to carry me to my island wasn't there, or the the, the plane, the puddle jumper, whatever those little Caribbean yeah. death-defying planes. So Martin said, "Why don't you come and spend the night with us on the boat?" So I like then I was like, you know, cruising out with him, and we arrived at this little harbor in in Turks and Caicos, and there was the fucking Quicksilver Crossing, which at that point was in every single. Quicksilver commercial or in oh, yeah. every surf store. In it was the their main marketing It was vehicle. the main marketing thing. And there it was with the blue hull and the orange paintings and everything. And um, most uncomfortable boat there. Dude, I, 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 tra I ended up traveling all over Indonesia on that boat dude, in a tiny little bunk that was like so like a prison bunk. And like when it hit there was those. nowhere to sit on the whole dude, Everybody was vomiting when it hit these like 30 foot so ocean right. swells in the, in, the, in the middle of the Sumatra, like in the Javanese Sea or wherever we were in the Sumba straits but anyway that was so i met martin he was telling me all these stories and i had already because i met ricky rasmussen when i was young i knew a bit about mike boyham and all the, the g-land stuff g-land was this fantasy of goofy foots i'm a goofy foot surfer right so it was like the best at that point the best left wave in the world i still yeah, still is I, totally. dude i mean i the worst wipeout of my life was at g-land Absolutely. The, I mean, you have much worse wipeouts than me, Nathan. But for me, <laughs> it was, I'm, I maxed out on death yeah. at, at G-Land. Dude, I'm telling you, it was a fucking huge G. It was terrifying. Yeah. So anyway, so Martin, I said to Martin, dude, this is a great story. You know, I've never made a documentary, but I've always wanted to do a surfing documentary. So I want to, I'll, I'll get the money. Because I, I just finished a big Steven Seagal movie when he was like really famous fucking in the late 90s, early 2000s. Yep. And it had made a lot of money. And I knew the producers from the Seagal movie had tons of dough and they would do basically whatever I wanted. Sure. And suddenly what I wanted to do was uh, take Martin Daly's story and turn it into a feature film, right? So the first thing I had to do was film all the, the stories he was telling me and it, it sort of would default it into a documentary. Gotcha. Right? We, were, we went on the boat with him. It was, you know, I had all this money to yeah. do it. We traveled all over Indonesia. I met Mark Warren. I brought Sean Thompson with me. Sean Thompson's uh, kid had just died, right? Yep. And I'd known Sean for many, many years because we were all from South Africa. And his brother Paul, I was a good friend of, you know, and his mom, right? We really knew those people well. And I brought Sean had stopped surfing after, after Matthew died. He was really flipped out. And, and he'd be, never been to Indo because South Africans couldn't go to Indo the 70s because of apartheid and okay. Indonesia was a country of supposed black people in in the in the in the white supremacist talk of, of, sure. of South Africa you know so 
Wow, that's crazy. It was fucking crazy, dude. So, so oh, Sean yeah. had never been an ender, and it was like, I watched Sean come back to life. It was wow. so amazing because I mean, for a guy to lose his son, you know, it's in like, such a tragic, in way, such too. a tragic way. It was just and. Yeah, and, and and Sean is probably one of the most dedicated, surf-stoked people I've ever met. And for him to not be surfing. And the weird thing was my son was just turned 18. He was on the boat with us and already working as a cameraman with me. And, of course, he was this 18-year-old kid on this boat with Martin Daly and Ma uh, Mick Fanning was hanging out there and Parkinson was there and, and, and Sean Thompson. So Austin was, like, tripping out of his fucking skull to be with these guys. And he would be surfing nonstop, as you do when you're 18 and you're in Indo on the best boat in the world. And and Sean would watch him like a hawk. If Orson wiped out or his leash snapped, Sean would go, Martin, get the jet ski, right? He's, he's like, you know, Orson's in trouble, right? And the, he was like so vigilant because he had this experience with his son. And every night he would sit in the cabin and cry. It was unbelievable. It was one of the most Why moving. He because he just lost his son. Sean. Oh, Sean. Sean yeah, yeah, yeah. Talking about Orson. No, no, Orson wouldn't so cry. No, 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 no. It was like this, this, this connection. And Sean and Orson would just spend a lot of time together. So it was a very heavy period on that boat. Yeah. And all the time we were filming Martin talking and telling his stories. And, you know, it was like, wow. It was the same feeling I got when I filmed Nathan the first time. Mm. I was going, wow, this is a movie. Suddenly I wasn't doing uh, the research to make a, a script. I knew it was an actual movie happening. Yeah. And it was like, it was weird because I was going, fuck, you know, I mean, I'm making like $250,000 a movie directing these Steven Seagal action movies. And here I'm going, this is my life uh, purpose manifesting itself in this, I could feel in this documentary, this was really happening. And I'm not getting paid anything, right? right? I'm now I'm gonna flush my life down the toilet of controversy for for no money after I'm making you know like hundreds of thousands of dollars doing these action movies. But it was just like it, it just took over. The story had to be told. It just had to be told, yeah. and that's what Bruce Raymond, you know, was one of the heads of Quicksilver, had said. This is a story that has to be told. The problem was, yeah, it had to be told. But when everybody saw. It told, and they the first time it screened was at the Cine Vegas was a festival that the guys from Sundance uh, organized for Dennis Hopper because he was dying of, of of prostate cancer, and they had it in, in Las Vegas, and of course Hopper was super excited, you know, in his last you know months of life to head up this festival and to premiere a movie about drug dealing right, and right, surfing. Right. It was right up Dennis Hopper's you know alley, and one of my most treasured photographs is me and Dennis with his son Hopper and my son Orson at Cine Vegas about to go to the premiere of, of Sea of Darkness. And dude, the moment all the guys from Quicksilver, Martin Daly, they all came there, they were all sitting in the audience in, Ve in Vegas, saw that movie. The audience went fucking nuts. They yeah, loved it, right? The critical reviews were great. It won all these festivals, but those guys from Quicksilver went apeshit on me as if like I had somehow teletransported them to some world that they knew nothing about and I'd put words in their mouths and I was going, what the fuck, dude? Your guys all signed releases. You right. Know? You were there. And uh, th that's when then Martin and them decided they wanted to buy back the movie and da da da, da and the whole usual. So they bought it back and shelved it. Uh, basically, yes. Yeah. Nathan. Yeah. Why uh, choose to work with Michael? <laughs> Given his reputation, um, like why entrust him with your story? What, what's well, the opportunity for you? 
Um, it just came about with like an interview. It actually just happened naturally. It wasn't that I entrusted him or thought any great things of Michael going into it and getting to know Michael and going through it. Um, it changed my views and, uh, really I just, I live in Hawaii, so I'm not here, so I can't go over it with him or work on it really. So basically I just put in my good energy and just let him do it. And I knew if he did what he was, um, you know, his best work or tried his hardest and did it, which he is determined to do. And that's what I figured out through all this. Um, he was going to make it great. And so with all the limits that we had on footage and, uh, help and resources and that, which was very limited. Uh, when he came back to me with the movie, I was like, wow, you kind of did a good job or did a yeah. really good job. And then I was like, I don't know. Have you seen it? I watched it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so for me, uh, then I'm like, okay, that's cool. He did a great job. It's like, uh, better than I imagined, you know? And so there's a lot of different points on how the, the ending scene shows up to how the film is in the beginning. Um, and then the narrative through the film. And so, uh, then I watched it somewhere as a third party, you know what I mean? Not as it, me being the action guy and like wanting every shot to be the best action photo, uh, or whatever, you know, because that's what you would want to see for yourself being a surfer is like surf porn, like every shot being the best shot, like yeah. each clip, but it's not like that. And then you figure, okay, you're dealing with Hollywood, um, you know, limited resources, this and that. So there's shots in the movie that are I'm like, oh, that's lame or this and that. But then there's other stuff where it's like me and Scion, that's real-time footage of us coming to the dock, running down the dock. There's paddle, a lot of footage in there that I had never seen. Paddling, paddling up to there's the boat. There's a lot more that I didn't put in because I felt it would but be But paddling impressive. up to the boat. That's all yeah. the real footage while we're talking. And so when you think about, okay, there's stuff that maybe I don't like is like an A-plus action shot, which you're not going to get. But is the stories being told, the shots yeah, exactly. go with this thing. And so if you're not a surfer, it's, it's, uh, so that's what I mean by being a third party and just kind of watching it as that. Um, but then like the other stuff, when we're talking about Kirk Passmore passing, that's really him taking off on the wave, you know, his that's last, the exact wave. Yeah. That's the last wave. but you don't show him crashing, but you know what I mean? So, yeah. um, that's the story being told. And so when you look at it and you're like, oh, but you don't really know that that's the real wave. And so when you look at it, the story and the shots that are in there like that, that I don't even know where they came from or how they're in there. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's really an insane story, you know, or what, just, it's, uh, it, what I was, it validates a lot of things, you know? So it's, yeah, I was really kind of amazed by, like, I thought, okay, this is a big wave documentary or it's going to tell the document, the story behind aerial surfing and big wave. And then the pinnacle of the film will be Nathan doing the acid drop out of the helicopter. But what I didn't anticipate was how interconnected and like cosmic all these events in your life are where there's a passing of somebody and that propels you into a new direction in life and something significant happens, whether it's the code red swell or the Tahiti yeah. wave, somebody dying, the birth of your child, all of it, like the interconnectedness was kind of profound. Yeah, no. And then, so that's what I was saying to the last guy too. And so the day we screened the big screening in Honolulu, it was the day Kirk Passmore died the night we went into labor with our son. So that was a big screening today. We're having the big, uh, press release today. Today's my birthday. It's like, uh, all these weird things where you could never line it up. But then when you look back and you look, think about, uh, so, um, everything in my life happens uh, if you follow your heart, but I want to say not by accident, but just by like letting it happen. But if I ever try and make something happen, it never happens. Cause I'll overthink it. And yeah. And so but I just know if I try and do my best and 
just put myself places and be grateful. And uh, my big thing is never try and take too much because like, oh, when I did good in Tahiti when I was young, I went back the next year and it was the most publicized wave and then it made me get paid and all that. So I never went back to the contest because I never wanted to be a part of what that whole contest brought to Tahiti. But I would go on vacation and go as a, um, to enjoy the wave yeah. and the people and the place and really what it means in the, you know what I mean, in the wave. Yeah. And so it was funny because then it's like, oh, you're going back, but I could have never got the coverage if the, uh, if the contest wasn't there. And so all these circumstances, because it wouldn't have been shot on a fam- phantom camera, it yeah, wouldn't have been yeah, this, yeah. wouldn't have been that, I wouldn't have got this. And so uh, then it was like, oh, I don't, you know, so I just whatever, like the double XL, all that. Um, those are all crazy things that happened that I never even set out to do. Um, but those things, the relevance or connectedness of those things only makes sense in hindsight. You probably don't realize it But at that's the time. what I'm saying. It's trippy. Well, who figured out that roadmap? Was that your job, Michael? Or did yeah, Nathan no, kind of present no, like, hey, look at how crazy these connections are? No, I told are? him in the whole first interview. That's why he said, oh, this is a movie. Okay. Uh, when, when, when I guess my skill as I set that I found out in, in, uh, in uh, these documentaries, even though, like I personally as a person talk nonstop, but I actually, <laughs> when I'm filming, I don't talk at all. I actually listen. And uh, the only time I talk is I, I create a grid in my mind. Oh, I'm, you know, I have a pretty good memory. So I, I'm listening to what they're saying and I'm finding connections in the, in the grid in my mind where I can connect the dots as they're talking. And I'm, you know, I mean, I studied film. You know, I have a master's from an Ivy League university, <laughs> notwithstanding all the drug use. <laughs> just goes to show, you know, it's all it's all very healthy. Ask Timothy Leary, you know, you just got to know how to fucking do it properly. But it was, as Keith Richards said, I only did pure drugs. <laughs> right. No, so David I, Lee Roth, I used to have a drug problem until I could afford it. Exactly right. <laughs> there you go. So um, my favorite is Mitch Hedberg. I used to do drugs. I still do, but I used to too. <laughs> exactly. Or right. I've well, tried it the, once for twenty years. What did, what, what, <laughs> right. No. What did Jerry Garcia say? Reality is for people who can't handle drugs. <laughs> well, you know what? I don't do drugs. I only smoke weed. So just yeah, on, on that legal. note. But I've done them all, and I would never do them again. I don't think they're good in any way, shape, or form. But to, if to go through them, if you want to make yourself a stronger. Uh, person and all that, that's great. But for me personally, I've smoked pot. That's good. Um, there's, a, I mean, there's a lot of stories in the film about reasons me, that went so, wrong. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, so the, well, that's the whole last, thing. My last quote is Nobody from Nietzsche. Nobody wins, right? What, what, was that no, it? No, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? Or the gives point. you- But the problem or, is it can kill you. No, but the thing is- Well, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. Right, if right. it kills you, you become, you know, like- No, you know, but that's the case. Even weaker. with this movie, I said, uh, what doesn't kill you uh, makes you stronger or gives you PTSD. Well, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's well, because, exactly. Uh, because and that's, that's where I come in, right? So I find these guys now, I guess, like Martin Daly or, or, or Nathan or whatever, who've had these really hardcore lives. And for sure, you know, the war, the war of our culture, the culture wars doesn't just happen in places like Syria and Iraq and everywhere. It happens in people's heads. You know, the, the there's a lot of different things. You know, people go to different extremes. You know, Martin sailing his boat to the edge of the universe where people hadn't been before, you know, like Colonel Kurtz in Heart of Darkness. I mean, that's my metaphor for everything. And that was the beauty of Sea of Darkness was getting to film John Milius, the guy that wrote 
Apocalypse Now, right? It's all very intentional. There's nothing that I do in my movies that isn't intentional. It's all worked out and it's all thought out, but I don't tell anybody that. Sure. Because why they don't need to know it, yeah. right? So uh, I connect all those dots. And when I'm listening to the subject talking, I'm listening to not only the uh, coherent contemporaneous narrative structure of what they're saying, but I'm listening to the meta structure, the broader base structure, how it fits into my knowledge of history, right? And, you know, I'm, you know, I studied history. I have a degree in art history is a part of one of my things, right? So I'm very into that historical framing of events, yeah. right? But I also know a lot about surfing history because like I said earlier, I was on the beach in 19, whatever, 61 or 62 when uh, Mike Henson and Robert August came down with Bruce Brown, right? So like it was something that framed my life. So I'm listening to Nathan talking and I'm hearing st stories that I've heard or, or read about uh, his dad and his grandpa and I know all this stuff, right? And you know, I'd actually knew, had met Sion when, I, when we won the Surfer Pole Award for uh, Sea of Darkness. Uh, someone reminded me that Sion and I had had a very good time hanging out for a while uh, that night. I, I was that night. I was pretty oblivious. Sure. To but but you know all this stuff. There were really good vibes. Dave Wassel had said like you know you really had a good vibe, dude. So so you know there's all these little dots that get connected, and 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 you have to listen to them when the subject is talking. Right. That's the whole thing. And with Nathan, you know there, there's not there are very few times when you're filming someone and it's so electric that you know for sure you've got a movie. It was when, you know, when Martin told that story of him being asked by Mike Boyum to transport 40 tons of hashish from some island in, in the Mentawais to another, right? And he thought about it because he needed money and then he decided to turn it down. That was the first interview that I did with Martin Daly and that became, and I knew at that point. I remember saying to the to my son who was filming it, "Dude, I got the opening of the movie." Mm. I knew, and it never changed to this day. It's still the opening of the movie. If the movie ever gets seen, you'll see that, right? What was that moment with Nathan when you well, were that Nathan, with Nathan? Moment with Nathan was when I met. I, I you know, I met him a, a long time before that. But to cut a long story short, I was driving. Uh, Nathan reminded me earlier today with Hiriata Hart, the um, the the widow of Buttons, right? And she had, she had worked with me on, on a bunch of stuff as like my sort of production coordinator. And we were very close friends, you know, Buttons and my son and, and Harry and me and my girlfriend really had hung out a lot together on the North Shore. And she went, oh, look, there's Nathan Fletch. Because we were supposed to be doing something with Sonny Garcia. I was in the middle. I'd been working on Sonny for years because he's another one of those characters. It's just, you know, and, and then the Eddie didn't happen. And, you know, suddenly we had a film crew and nothing to film, right? And, uh, and then there was, and here he said, there's Nathan Fletcher, let's film him, right? And uh, so she pulled over and here he knows everybody so well. And somehow we bundled Nathan into the car. And we drove up to this production house and I knew exactly, you know, what I wanted to ask him straight away. And like, I, I, you know, and it was almost like, like Nathan talks about PTSD a lot and so does Bruce. And you think given how hard these guys have lived and the degree of, 
intensity uh, in their um, professions, their professional life. I mean, people don't really realize there's a huge dichotomy between us everyday surfers, you know, the Chaz Smith, Michael Oblivitz level surfers and professional surfers. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, you know, you and I may have busted an air once or twice, maybe. I'll you guarantee know? you've never busted an air, Michael. Well, I busted, <laughs> or I tell what I have busted. Dude, you showed me bust. the Instagram <laughs> clip earlier. No, no, yeah, what exactly. I have busted it was, was a like a flying kick out. Oh, of course. We yes. used to do flying kick outs all the time back in the day. That was our big thing, which is the, the the equivalent. What I'm trying to say is- There was cover shots of flying kick outs. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, what, that's, that's, there, but now, that's just, what we used to do. But yeah. what I'm trying, my point is professional surfers, and I realized that when I was young and I watched Sean Thompson surf, are so fucking good and they have this, unbelievable supernatural ability to do things that mortals don't do. Yeah. So you know what, even when I watch surfing, yeah. that's what I think too, because when I watch these guys surf, it's like in my mind, I can wrap my head around it a little bit, most of it, but it's like their level of rail control and the maneuvers that they can link together is like, it's fucked up, you know? And it's so, not relatable for me. Well, like Felipe Toledo, John John, I'm like, dude. I could understand it, but it's just like, I grew up in a different time in my body. Um, I wish I could surf, but it's just like in the time from like, if you were a kid in say the eighties or a kid in 2008, you, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's just like the way you hit the lip, you don't come up and grab your rail and do a blow tail and around like right. whatever club it's, sandwich, whatever it's called. Yeah. Um, but it's just funny because that's just like a standard maneuver totally. now. And so it's like, oh, you wish you ripped. I wish I ripped. But I, even in my head, I'm just like, I watch these guys, whom two turns to air to like reverse on the, you know what I mean? It's just it's like, gnarly. it's crazy. Let me, but let me ask you regarding, but PT I love to watch it. PTSD. Yeah, uh, let's talk about it. Are you, have you been diagnosed? No. I, I diagnosed him. So gotcha. what happens, no. right? <laughs> I'm going to tell you. I didn't even know about that shit. PTSD is just like some abbreviation. And then, uh, after Cyan passed and all that and dealing with that, then when I would be in bed, I would be thinking about just whatever. And I would, cause you imagine things, you know, and at this time, like we just surfed Jaws and stuff and it was the first time other paddle, whatever. But you're just imagining trying to surf the biggest waves in the world and then he drowned or whatever. And he was my surf partner. And so then when I would go to think about these things, like imagine a swell coming and think about being in the bowl and holding your line to whip it. Oh, the only thing I could see was like his face just all bloated and foaming, like just when I found him, you know? And so I found out what PTSD is. It's like some graphic image that's happened to you that you can't get out of your head. And the whole thing is, is you wish you could get that out of your head because that's the last thing you want to think about when you're going into surf big waves is your the worst friend. case scenario. Yeah, the worst case scenario that's just happened. So then it's like, what do I do? Um, what should I do? Like, you know what I mean? And so it's like every time you lay down and you think about stuff or even just when you're laying there, that's what pops into your head. You know, you can't get rid of it. So my whole reasoning behind all of it, and I, as I say it probably even in the movie, but it's like, I was like, what would Sion do? What would he want me to do as his partner with our plans that we had? And I was like, he would want me to just carry on and go bigger, you know? And, and if I don't, if I cowered out and just let this ruin my life and never surf again and, and, take it like that is such a, uh, you know, a trauma instead of like a strength. Right. You can let it empower you. So it took a couple months because, you know, you saw the whole story, like Andy passing, you know, yeah. that was a huge deal. Then, and, and so that was the first day of science surf Mavericks, Andy passes, boom. Second time we go back, then he drowns. And then it was like, you know, cause I was real close with both. And so then it was like, Oh, so the first place we went was Tavarua, you know, and I got Bruce to come whatever. And so, 
that was like the swell of swells and just caught that wave and it was just like a super blessing you know it's like it was so magical just to go through all that and then it was you know the tahiti swell and then it was like oh and then it gave me and bruce those waves you know and so it's like oh we shared the board at tabarua then we shared waves or whatever at code red and then didn't drown and we both wiped out at code red and you know what i mean and so i think the those incidences empowering you to go do those things is very interesting but how do you treat the ptsd well, on a I'm, daily well it just it goes away you know what i mean and so i could see it at any any time now it's just like an uh, uh, acid trip you know what i mean it's like once it but it doesn't haunt me like it does okay but it's still it's it's deeper than that now you know what i mean it's not so on the surface anymore it really but the thing is is uh it makes me, you know, have respect for the ocean. It makes me have respect for, you know, my friends, my family. It makes me have respect for myself. It gives me a purpose to live um, and all that, you know, because it's like, oh, you've seen the worst of the worst. You put yourself there. You tried to test your life's limits uh, numerous times. That was my whole deal was put yourself in the gnarliest situation and then deal with it. Uh, yeah. And so I did that like a bunch, you know, and a lot of times it wasn't on film because people right. wouldn't go out there. And so now it's like everything's filmed. It's all this and that. But for 10 years, it wasn't, and nobody else really did it. And so I have all those memories, and I have all those rides and all that too. But then with all the – so it's like out of respect for the things that have happened and everything. It's like now I treat it like, oh, um, I don't put myself there because I've survived that. It gave me everything in my life, you know. And so it's like, oh, if I keep doing that, it's going to disrespect this, uh, you know, the ocean and the, and the, um, the harmony that I live in. Is that to and, say that you're not going to surf big waves any longer? Well, I don't surf big waves, really. Um, you know, like 8 feet, 10 feet, 12 feet, like 15 foot, whatever. But, but like nothing like what we have saw in the well, film. Well, no, I'm just not trying to go around and surf the biggest waves in the world and, and catch the gnarliest one and get, uh, ulti- you know, just get pounded to deal with it. So I just feel like I've done it enough. And if I didn't do it to the level I did it at, people wouldn't even be doing it to the level they're doing that. And so it's like all part of a learning process and a stepping stone just to help the evolution of surfing and just on the greater side of surfing, not just for me, you know, it's more like I contributed a lot to the community and I want to do it till I'm 80 and I want to be able to take my kids and I want to take my friends and, and I want to see all these wave pools and Olympics and all the other bullshit that comes along with surfing because it's just grown so out of control and it's so cool. We'll say to where when I was young, it wasn't. And then before me or an outlaw, if you surf, um, so, so what does that next phase of surfing look like for you in your career? Podcasts. And <laughs> no, but honestly, it's more like uh, I take better care of myself than I ever have. I work out. I do all those things. So um, you're just going to see me just try and uh, just sustain who I am, be able to tell these crazy stories of what has happened, live a normal life as far as sleeping at a normal time, eating food food and drinking coffee like on that level like normal uh does vans have any expectation for you like what are they what do they expect to get out of the exchange of your relationship over the next couple of years you or know do they that's co-sign? never been even talked about uh they don't talk about that we don't talk about that i've been at vans 20 years and there's been things that they've referenced their whole surf brand on thing you know what i mean per, my personal who I am. And so they've got a lot out of me. I feel like I'm an asset to them because they put so much into me. They're going to try and protect their asset. I hope, um, because I feel what makes vans vans and being sold out at, uh, whatever, some 
strip mall in the middle of wherever and then it could be also at the most core shop and no other company can um transcend into being totally sold out and being uh hardcore or authentic and vans does and it's only because they support their oldest skateboard riders and their team and it's been and so you'll see that like say in oakley they don't do that but oakley doesn't mean shit even though they have the best products and this and that but it's uh they fire the best rider to pick up the newest kid, pay him a big salary as soon as he gets of an age. And so that transcends into the people that uh, look at the brand and view the brand. So yeah, it's a great brand quality company, like is the best, you know, yeah. but it doesn't mean shit because they don't support their core, their true people that have been true. So they've had everybody, you know, and it's like they lose that. So when I see vans in uh, my relationship with vans and what I'm asked to do, it's more like, be the person I'm going to be, Yeah. do the best I can do. And then uh, they know they're going to get the most out of that. And so uh, I'm kind of at the pinnacle of the top of the riders because I'm the oldest and I've been on the longest for the short borders. Joel's been on too, but he's in a whole different division kind of. Yeah. So more or less, I feel like my job is to be a role model and to, you know, like say, take the Gadaskis uh, surfing big waves or show them, you know, different tips on safety, get them to the brag meetings, do that. So it's like, oh, that's, you know what I mean? So it's yeah. like, oh yeah. So then I teach them about safety. I paddle them out, blah, blah, blah. I introduce them to these people. I, we talk about boards. And so what that does is goes to the next guys, um, say Wyatt and Jet and them, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like a, it's kind of a tier. And so in surfing, that's where I'm at. And so that's the role I play and that's what's going to be expected. I feel of me. Cool. So being at the skate park on the skate days, they want, you know what I mean? Just uh, yeah. me myself, so. Awesome. Uh, Michael, I want to be respectful of our time. I know you guys got another mm-hmm. appointment. Um, tell me what the distribution model is for the film. Where can, <laughs> like, obviously people can go see it in theaters on the 13th, yeah. I believe. So here, so here's 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 the game plan, right? The the, the glorious game plan. Thank you, too, right. by the way, for yeah. your time. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. 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 thank you, man. And tell, tell Chaz, thank you. Yeah. Every and Derek Riley, and we're going to see Derek next week in Australia. Nathan oh, nice. and I. So basically, Nathan and I are flying out tomorrow to Australia. It's the 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 company that uh, distributed Free Solo in Australia is doing us in Australasia. And Epic. I'm, right. They're really good. And um, we showed the movie to uh, uh, Nathan and I have some close friends. One of my friends is Catherine Bigelow, the woman who got the Academy Award for. Uh, the Hurt Locker. Yep. She said, "Michael, this movie is your best movie. It's magnificently cinematic, and uh, I prefer it better than Free Solo." She's on the, she said, "It's like the best extreme sports movie I've ever seen." And then Nathan showed it uh, at a different time to Julian Schnabel, right? And Julian called me up and said, "You know, Michael, I've known you thirty years, and you know, I'd tell you if it was a piece of shit because I love the Fletcher family, but this is absolutely the best surf movie." I've ever seen. He said it blows away that Land Hamilton movie. It blows away the that <laughs> Kelly Slater Momentum Generation movie. He said this is like the most unique surf movie. It's a lot. Made. It's a lot more raw. Yeah, it's like, like a movie. Yeah, it's yeah. not. It's, I'm not trying well, to. I'm not trying to make a branding package. You know, Red Bull. One of the things Red Bull left me completely alone, thanks to Philip Mundeller at the at the head of Red Bull Film. It was not like a branded Red. There's no Red Bull athletes in the movie. Nothing right. like that. We we were really set off from day one to make a serious picture that was my goal the other thing is it's not so much like uh just a recollection of times so much as a recollection of facts with footage to be like oh these are some of the gnarliest waves ever ridden so it's like it's not like what we thought about how we hung out 
Right. And so I'm not saying that that's good or bad or anything. That's no. just, but for me, I would have, could have never even done that because I would have never even felt, and that's the thing with this. It's like, I can't even believe people want to watch it. Um, and so now it's like, oh, people really like it. So it's like, yeah. whoa, this is crazy. And I feel like that's the whole deal right there. Well, I want to say, too, I mean, when, when, when I embarked on this project, right? Um, once I, I had it to a point where I could show it to Philip at Red Bull and Ben Bryant, I mean, those guys had been the earliest supporters of Sea of Darkness. Ben Bryant and Danny Grant, actually, from Orchard, right, used to run a company called Video Action Sports, and they offered Martin Daly hundreds of thousands of dollars at the time for Sea of Darkness, and I wish he would have taken it. Yeah. And he said, well, if they're offering me this much money, I'll get a better deal somewhere else. Right. Who knows what he was actually thinking, right? Yeah. But the bottom line is they've been supporters of mine for a long ass time. And when we set about doing this movie, we were very conscious we were gonna try and do something that was really good, a serious movie. So to cut back to your question. Yeah. So the movie is distributed in America by The, the Orchard, which is also now known as 1019 Media. Oh, right? okay. Um, Hold on, can we close the door because you're gonna hear all of that. We're late. Doesn't matter. Um, uh, it's, he's making his recording useless. Um, just it's fine. Just, right. So, so 1019 so in, uh, have the US distribution rights. The first initial screening is gonna be this Fathom screening on where you'll see it in all these big AMC movie theaters. Um, both Julian Schnabel and Catherine Bigelow have, um, uh, uh, said to me quite in, in no uncertain terms that they that they think the movie should at the very least be eligible for an Academy Award submission in, in, in documentaries. That'd be Cause, insane. Because no surf movies ever had that, right? I feel like also Momentum Generation and Free Solo have started to kind of make inroads into the mainstream media, you know? So it won't, like there's now people who care about surfing that didn't care about surfing before. But I didn't set out to make a surfing movie. I set out to make yeah, it's a, a, human I, interest. I, a human interest movie. And I historical knew, and emotional. I mean, Nathan is such a magnetic personality and he's so charismatic. Um, there are few people who could carry a movie the way he is. You know, we, me and Carter Slade, the original editor, another great surfer, yeah. right? So Carter and I always, our nickname for Nathan was the Marlboro Man because we would always find this That's insane funny. surfing footage of him like, surfing some monster wave in Chile or, or riding Mavericks. And then the next shot would be him sitting on the jet ski covered in blood with a with smoking a Marlboro or like sitting on the ski, you know, where Scion, he's smoking a Marlboro trying to figure out what, what, you know, what's, what's the next move shit like that. So, you know, he's just like, like a, like a larger than life character, yeah. you know? So I think that he's, that it, it's, it's the same way as, as the guys, Tommy Caldwell, whoever the guys in the Dawn Wall, that movie. Oh yeah. yeah. And the same as the guy in, uh, in, in Free Solo, they're like, they're more than the sum total of their parts. Yep. You know, they're not just extreme sports people. What extreme sports becomes a metaphor for life. You know, it's got that kind of rocky aspect yeah. of someone overcoming these amazing obstacles to take it to the next level and they may die in the process. And I think the real epic strength of, of heavy water, and that's why it's called heavy water, is that people do die in the process. Okay. And you see it right there. And that's another thing too, back to the PTSD before you're done, is yeah, yoga and uh, self-realization and breathing is the only way to really get through the, or just a, not the only way, but it's you know a natural medication. And so um, that's definitely a, something. Part of your lifestyle. Oh yeah, yeah Nathan's well, they, very they, into natural medications. But that if you do it, you know you can get through it. And so it's like, oh, 
you know, because you can mask it with drugs, you can do the, and uh, you can mask it with adrenaline, even to just all of it, you know. Yeah. So, but you're still not uh, taking it head on. Yeah. So let me and just so I, do the the, the yeah, distribution thing before they kick us out of here. So just quickly, so ten nineteen, formerly known as the Orchard, is doing it as a theatrical, and then uh, hopefully, you know, we've got a lot of like uh, interested Netflix. They really like the, the the head of marketing really likes the movie. Um, what Nathan and I are hoping now is the next phase is they're going to put it in for an, an Academy Awards run, which means we need to do like a week or two in a regular theater in in uh, like the Lemley Santa Monica, hopefully in, uh, in in L.A. near the beach and in the Angelica in New York. We're going to do that run. That then qualifies it for getting like reviews from the New York Times and the L.A. Times and everything. And that's when you seriously begin your Academy Award campaign. You know, but yeah. I, I am absolutely 100% believe this movie would go all the way. I, I thought Sea of Darkness would go all the way if they let me. Right. I mean, and the truth is, this kind of f- filmmaking was pioneered long before the Momentum Generation. Oh, yeah. And long before uh, the, whatever that other movie was well, that you brought it started within one summer. Well, no, but when I did Sea of Darkness, it was a, a design as a refutation of The Endless Summer. Yeah. I want to be quite clear. I started the whole fucking thing with Sea of Darkness. <laughs> and the whole idea was that The Endless Summer is about light. Surfing happens in the winter, not in the summer, mm-hmm. right? So I would have called it The Endless Winter, yeah. right? Because that's really what it is. And maybe that's what my surf movies are all about, sure. Endless Winter. Sure. But for sure, Sea of Darkness was the first one. And Heavy Water is a really good follow-up. It's like a trilogy. And the third one that I've been working on is a Sonny Garcia documentary, which is about indigenous Native Hawaiian people and their relationship to the surfing world at large. That's what that one's about, too. We'll have you back on the show when that uh, comes to fruition that or comes goes, right into, now, goes into editing. And right post. now, we just want to say that our prayers are with Sonny, yeah. with his family. I love Sonny. He's like one of the most amazing guys I ever met in my life. I mean, that story is amazing. I, I love his son Stone so much. I've spent so much time with those people over the last 10 years. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're all praying for you. And uh, that's, awesome. you know, where we're at. It's a good note to go out on, boys. Thank you so much. Heavy Water is screening simultaneously nationwide in the U.S. on June 13th at 7 p.m. in select AMC theaters. Go to Fathom Events and search Heavy Water to secure your tickets. I've posted a trailer for the film and a trailer for Sea of Darkness on surfsplendorpodcast.com along with Michael's stage fall that we discussed at the opening of this show and uh, images of Nathan's acid drop and everything else that we discussed. This episode was, of course, supported by SpyOptic.com for all your sunglass and snow goggle needs. When you use our promo code PODCAST in the month of June, you'll get a free t-shirt, free Surf Splendor sunglass pouch, and a year-long membership to the Surf Rider Foundation. I'll process all of those memberships at the end of June and then send you an email confirmation. SpyOptic.com, promo code PODCAST. 
Thanks for the ongoing support, all of you. And then, of course, I will be in New Smyrna Beach this weekend for the Florida Surf Film Festival, where we're screening the Hobgood Brothers' new documentary. Swing by if you're around. I would love to connect with you. Until then, this is David Scales for Surf Splendor, reminding you to get back into the ocean, share some waves, and shred on.